year, new love. New year, new love. Taking a look at what the New Testament has to say about Christians loving one another, about Christian love in the church. And today we will be taking a look at the nature of love, the nature of Christian love. Well, I trust that you're close to First Peter. Let's pray and we'll dive in. So let's pray, church. Father, thank you for the morning, for the chance to come. Uh, for the chance to offer up the lips of our praise to you. It is a good thing for us to make music and to rejoice and to sing loud and, and good songs to you. And we're so very grateful that we can lift our hearts to you in song and give you uh, the praise of our lips. It's a, it's a delight to our hearts. Father, it is also a delight to look into your word and to look into the teachings of the New Testament that you have preserved for us through the ages. Father, we want to be a church that loves well. We want to be Christians who love each other well in the church, in obedience to the command of our Lord and Savior, that we love one another as he has loved us. And so I pray both for this morning and for the Sundays that are upcoming as we look into your word. I pray that you would teach us. I pray that you would make our hearts soft, that you would help us to be introspective, to look at our own love in our own lives that we have for the people here in this church and even the Christians beyond these walls, that we may love them well in obedience to Christ. Teach us today, we pray, the nature of the kind of love that we are to have for one another. Enable us by your spirit to do it, we ask, in the name of Jesus, and God's people said, amen. Well, John Wagner tells a, a story uh, about a fake or feigned love, a disingenuous kind of love. And I'd like to read that story uh, to get us started this morning. He wrote this. I was attending a junior livestock show when a grand champion lamb owned by a little girl was being auctioned. He writes, as the bids reached $5 per pound, the little girl standing beside the, the lamb in the arena began to slowly cry. At $10, he writes, the tears were streaming down her face as she clasped her arms tightly around the lamb's neck. The higher the bids rose, the more she cried. Finally, Finally, a local businessman bought the lamb for more than $1,000, but then, in kindness and great generosity, announced that he was going to donate it back to the little girl because of her uh, apparent love for this animal. The crowd went wild, applauded, and cheered this man's act of generosity. Well, uh, this man writes, John Wagner, months later, months later, I was judging some statewide essays when I came across one from a little girl who told about the time that her grand champion lamb had been auctioned. And she wrote the following, the prices, the prices began to get so high during the bidding, she wrote, that I started crying from happiness. She continued saying, the man who bought the lamb for so much more than I ever dreamed I would get returned the lamb to me. And when we got home, daddy barbecued it. And it was really delicious, she wrote. (laughs) Well, friends, last week we began a sermon series on love in the church, exploring what Jesus had to say about loving one another as Christians. Well, I began to work my way through the New Testament. I looked at the writings of Paul, and I looked at the writings of Peter. 
Peter and uh, the, the writings of the author of Hebrew, Hebrews trying to see what all of these New Testament writers had to say about Christians loving one another. And it became very apparent as I was doing my preparation that there was a threefold pattern. A threefold pattern really began to emerge. First of all, many of the verses talked about the nature of the kind of love that we are to have for one another. Still, some of the other verses told us how, told us how specifically we were, are to love one another. And still a third set of verses talked about the results, the results of what happens in a local church when we love one another. So today we're going to take the first of these sets of verses. We are going to begin by uncovering the nature of the nature of the kind of love that we are to have one another. First of all, there are eight of them, and we will cover four today and four next week. Four today and four next week. Four fundamental characteristics of Christian brotherly love. The first of which is that love should be sincere. Love must be sincere, not fake, not feigned, not hypocritical as maybe the love of this girl in our opening story. So if you're in your Bibles, and I hope you are, let's take a look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Now, we actually just covered these verses a few weeks ago. So if they sound familiar, good. Love must be sincere. That is the first characteristic. The first thing that we see about the nature of Christian love is that it is to be sincere. Now, let me give you a little bit of the context. In context, Peter chapter 1, Paul begins, excuse me, Peter begins by talking about the believer's obligation towards God, which is, of course, holiness. He says, be holy, for I am holy. And so the first half of Peter is mostly about the holiness of the Christian. Then Peter takes a turn in directions. He begins to talk about not our obligation towards God, but our obligation towards one another, the obligation that we have towards other Christians, our fellow believers. And, of course, that is that we love. So let's take a look at verse 22. Verse 22 of 1 Peter 1. He says, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have a sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. And so Peter begins here by talking about a purification, right? Take a look at the verse. Now that you have purified yourselves. It's language of our sins being washed away at the moment we place our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior and begin to follow him of, as our Lord. And so if we are Christians, there is a purification that happens. We have, in a sense, purified ourselves, notice, by obeying the truth. That is, by obeying the words of the gospel, to repent and to believe in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. Now, what happens when a person has that experience? What happens when we become Christians? Notice what he says. Now that you have done this, you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, the result then is what? So that you have a sincere love for one another. Here, Peter introduces the first trait of Christian love, and that is our love is to be sincere. Now, the word in Greek means without hypocrisy, that our love is to be without hypocrisy. It is to be uncontrived. Simply put, Christians are not to love each other in a fake 
kind of way. It's not a kind of love that does one thing, that says one thing, and then does another, right? It's word both in, 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 it's, it's love both in action and in deed. It is sincere. It's not fake. Uh, most of you probably know my uh, third daughter. Her name is Sawyer. She's two and a half at this point, but uh, about six months ago, roughly, uh, we kind of went through a, a, a sickness in our home, and uh, two or three of the kids were coughing, and so they had a really rough cough, uh, you know, one of those coughs from the, from the chest. It just sounds really raspy and, and nasty, and uh, I believe it was probably Asher and Piper who had the cough, and they were coughing, and uh, Sawyer, daughter uh, number two, quickly realized that if you cough in the household that you might get some attention from mommy and daddy, right? So the older two would cough and we might give them a drink of water or give them a cough drop or give them a word of sympathy or something like that. And of course, uh, Piper, uh, excuse me, Sawyer is smart, right? And so what, it, what do you think she started to do? One of these, right? <coughs> right, one of those fake kind of coughs. And of course, mom and dad realized what was going on. We knew that she really wasn't sick. She was just faking it, right? She was just faking it to get attention. Friends, I wonder how much of our love, I wonder how much of our love that we demonstrate for one another is so fake that it's obvious, that the other person knows that we're not sincere, that we won't pray when we say that we will, that we're giving words of sympathy, but they know that our heart is not broken for them. Because first of all, love is to be sincere. It's to be unhypocritical. It's to be uncontrived. But not only that, notice what Peter goes on to say. Love is not only to be sincere, but it's to be done, as he says, deeply. He says, love one another deeply. That is, from the heart. The word deeply literally talks about, it's the image of a person who is straining every muscle. So that literally you could say something like, we are to love one another with every one of our muscles strained. It's the idea that we're working hard. And so uh, by way of comparison, we are to love like the guy on the right, not like the little boy on the left, right? We are to love one another with every muscle strained, right? And in case you're wondering, that's not me with another guy photoshopped in, right? You may be thinking that. I just want to put the rumor to rest. Um, we are to love one another with every muscle strained. The idea is that we're not supposed to have a wimpy kind of a love where we just half-heartedly uh, exercise our spiritual muscles. No, we are to give every effort, right, to do everything that we can to love one another. So first of all, friends, what's the nature of love? It's to be sincere, unhypocritical, with every muscle strained. Secondly, not only that, if you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans, we will see our second characteristic of the nature of love, and that is that love is a debt. Love is portrayed by Paul in Romans 13, verses 7 and 8, as a debt. So if you have your Bibles, go uh, towards the front a little bit until you find the book of Romans. There in Romans chapter 13, what Paul is doing is he's wrapping up his teaching to Christians about our responsibility and obligations towards the government. That's what he's been talking about in verses 1 through 7. And he wraps it up by saying that we are to pay off our, quote, debts. We are to give 
to everyone what we owe them. If we owe them taxes, then we are supposed to pay our taxes. If we owe revenue, we are supposed to give revenue. If we owe respect, then we give respect. If we are to owe honor, then we are to give honor. Notice what he says in verse 7 of Romans 13. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. And this teaching about our obligations to the civil authorities, the government, apparently triggers a, a thought in Paul's mind because he transitions in verse, uh, from verse 7 into verse 8 and he begins to talk about our obligations or our debts, not to the government, but to each other, to other Christians, to other believers. And he says that the only outstanding debt, so to speak, that we should have is the debt to love one another. Notice what he says in verse 8. Let no debt remain outstanding. And he explains what he means. Except, except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Uh, it was uh, probably a few weeks ago that uh, Shelly and I and the family had an opportunity to spend uh, the entire Christmas week with her side of the family. So we traveled uh, all the way down to Arkansas, made it safely, and had just a wonderful time with uh, mother-in-law and father-in-law and uh, brother-in-law and sister-in-law and, and nieces and nephews, and we had a great time. And in the midst of the conversations uh, that were going on, I recall uh, my wife sharing a story about an experience that she had when she was going to, I think, elementary school school. Maybe it was older, maybe high school. But she told the story, just kind of out of the blue, I don't remember the context, about how her friend in high school, about how, I think it was maybe her best friend in high school, would borrow money from her every day to pay for her lunch. So every day she would go to to school and her friend would have no money. And so Shelly, being kind and I guess having enough money to cover both her lunch and her friend's lunch, would pay for her friend's lunch pretty much every day. She said, I remember that there was one day that she came with about two or three $20 bills and she gave me the the money in in some kind of vain attempt to pay me back. Certainly it didn't cover uh, the girl's debt. Uh, And she said, I don't know, mom and dad, did you, you know, certainly you knew that that was happening, right? Certainly you knew that I was taking the money that you guys had given me for lunch and was, uh, you know, sharing it with my friend. Apparently, Shelly's mom and dad didn't really mind the girl having a continued debt, right? Having a, a continuing debt. Notice what Paul says. Paul is okay with us having one continuing debt, and that is that we love one another. He continues at the end of verse 8 and all the way through verse 10 to explain how this fulfills God's law. We'll talk about that as we talk about the results of Christian love in a few weeks. But here's the point. How do you see love? How do you view the nature of your love that you should have for the brothers and sisters in Christ, both in this church and beyond its walls? Do we see love as a debt? as an obligation that we have towards our fellow Christians? Or, if we were honest, do we see it as optional? Do we see it as an elective in CLU, Christian Life University, right? Is it an elective or is it mandatory? And how would it change the way we would love and view other Christians if we actually saw our love and our relationship with them as 
essential and not optional, as mandatory and not voluntary. If in reality, if in reality, we only love those who are lovely or are lovable, who are our friends or our family, then we fail to take this debt to love the brothers and sisters in Christ seriously. So what's the nature of love? Well, love is to be sincere, right? And secondly, it's, it's a debt. It's an obligation that we have towards one another. But not only that, turn with me to the book of Galatians, a little bit towards the end of your Bible, right? Galatians chapter 5. It's a familiar uh, passage to many of you. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23. And there we learn a, a third characteristic of the nature of love. It's not only sincere in, in a debt, but it's, it's supernatural. Love among the brethren is a supernatural kind of love. And we see that from the passage commonly called the f- passage on the fruit of the, of the Spirit. So here's a bit of the context. Starting in verse 16 and running through verse 18, Paul teaches us that if we live by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can overcome our natural sinful desires because these two living inside of us are in conflict with one another. And if you're a Christian, you know what I'm talking about, right? There is the Holy Spirit prodding us and moving us towards holiness. And then there's our flesh that's prodding and moving us towards sinfulness. He says these two are at war with one another. Then in verse 19 and starting through, uh, running through verse 21, he shows us, a picture of the flesh. He says, this is what it looks like if you live according to the flesh. And this is what happens to those who give themselves in reckless abandonment to it. Finally, finally, starting in verse 22 and running through verse 23, we get a list of the fruit of the Spirit, the attitudes and the actions that a Spirit-controlled life produces. Now, friends, what is the first on the list? You remember? Let's find out in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is what? Say it, church. Love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. He begins with it. Joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And he says, against such things, there is no law. So Paul begins by describing the Spirit-filled life and the characteristics that become of it. And he says, love is first. It is foundational, right? And of course, he uses the Greek word agape, which you may be familiar with. It's a self-sacrificing kind of love. And so the simple yet significant point I want us to make is this. Christian love, in its origins, is supernatural. What that means is that on our own, if left to ourselves, in our flesh, we really wouldn't be able to love one another the way that God intends for us and calls us to, right? This kind of love must be produced by God himself, God the Holy Spirit, living inside the born-again Christian. We meet, what this means practically is we can't conjure up love for one another. I can't will it, right? The Holy Spirit must produce it as I walk daily with him in Jesus Christ. I remember, I remember when I was little. I'm not sure exactly how old, maybe six or seven, um, I, maybe even younger than that. I was under the false impression that maybe some of your children once fell prey to, but I was, I was under the false impression that, that fruit 
uh, and particularly peaches, because peaches, by the way, are my favorite fruit, that peaches uh, came from the store. I don't know if you ever thought that as a kid, or maybe your kids thought that. Hey, where do, where do you get your fruit, your food? Where, where, where do peaches come from, or apples, or whatever? Well, it comes from the store. That's kind of what I thought, because, well, that's where we got our peaches. Um, so, by the way, if you ever want to make me a pie... Peach is the way to go, okay? Peach pie, awesome. So I remember thinking this, and then uh, my parents uh, took me on a little trip that I won't forget. Uh, My aunt uh, owns, my aunt's family, I should say, the Vogels, that's their last name. Uh, My aunt's family owns a peach orchard in Texas. So if you ever go down to central Texas, and you make your way south of Austin to a little town called Fredericksburg, It's worth going, believe me. It's an awesome town. Fredericksburg, Texas. You might find this place. Peaches, the Vogel Orchard. That is my aunt's uh, family business. Her mom and dad, I believe, run this, and she, I'm sure, was a part of it. And so my mom and dad took me to this place. You can see uh, the next picture, a little bit more of what it looks like. Yeah, it looks like a peach. Uh, You know, you can can walk up and, and pick up your peaches. But the coolest thing that you can do is you can actually go back behind those bars, and you can go and pick your own fruit. You can go pick your own peaches. And so I remember when I was little, we did this. Uh, And I remember, you know, climbing a ladder with my aunt helping me and then pulling down the peaches and saying, can I eat this one? Yes. And I I dug in. It was awesome. Uh, And I learned an important lesson that day. Fruit doesn't come from a store. It doesn't come from a factory. Maybe more significantly, it's it's not produced by man, right? It's produced by God through his creation. Friends, what does Paul call love. He calls it the what? Fruit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's produced by God. Paul tells us that spiritual fruit, love in particular, isn't produced by man. It's not man-made. You don't get it from a store. It's through God in his new creation by the Holy Spirit. So we desperately need God to help us love one another. And fourth, The fourth characteristic of the nature of love is that love is not only sincere, it's not only a debt, it's not only supernatural in nature, but it is, for lack of a better term, variable. It is variable. What do I mean by that? I'll tell you in just a second. But remember back with me just a week ago, just seven days ago, we talked about love. And we saw that Jesus told us to love one another. And then we saw, as we went into Revelation chapter 2, Jesus' evaluation of two churches. Remember, if you were here, two churches. One of them had a love that was increasing. That is, they were getting better and better at loving one another. One of them had a love that had slowly declined, right? Love is variable. It can grow and it can decline. It can rise, and it can fall. It can flourish, and it can fade in the life of an individual Christian, and in the life of any local church. So, so too is the reality of love among Christians. This is why I find the prayer of Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 fascinating. So if you want to turn there for our final text of the day, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 starting in verse 12, because Paul there prays for the church in Thessalonica, and he prays that its acts of love and its affection for one another would grow. Notice verse 12. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another, 
and for all people, just as we also <coughs> do for you. And so Paul uses the word here, and he prays that their love would abound. It would literally overflow. The language in the Greek here is the image of a river that has overflowed its banks. And unfortunately, due to uh, some local flooding, we understand what that means, right? We have seen that here in our own town and in the traveling uh, areas around here. Uh, about a week ago, my wife and I took our kids to a water park in West Lafayette, Indiana. So we traveled across two or three uh, bridges. And I noticed, I wanted to pay attention, as I was traveling across, I wanted to see the water levels. And I noticed that... Uh, that the water was overflowing its banks. I mean, it was crazy how far the water had pushed past the limits of the banks of that particular river. And so for rivers to overflow their banks is really not a good thing. But for our love in the church to overflow, to be without limitation, to be without hindrance, that's a very good thing. In fact, one commentator by the name of Worst uh, describes what Paul is praying for in these terms. He says, Paul prays for a perpetual flood of love. I really like that. A perpetual flood of love in the church. And so here's the application point. If Paul the Apostle prays for a local church and their love to abound, to grow, then friends, shouldn't that be something that we pray for as well? I mean, if Paul takes the time to even write it out, that he would pray for love in the local church to grow, shouldn't that be on our prayer list? Shouldn't that be a point of prayer emphasis for us, both for our local church and for others in the area? What's fascinating is not only do we have recorded for us in Scripture that Paul prayed this prayer, but we actually see that it is answered. So if you turn to the next book in the Bible, 2 Thessalonians, what we find out in chapter 1, verse 3, is that God apparently answered this prayer. So that Paul could write in a subsequent letter to the same church, he says this, 2 Thessalonians 1, 3, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as it is only fitting... Because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you towards one another grows ever greater. Friends, notice the testimony of Scripture. God answers prayer when we pray that the love in the local church would abound, would overflow, that there would be a perpetual flood of love. And so here's what we've seen today love is sincere. It is a debt. It is supernatural. And it is variable. And my prayer for our local church is that we would be like the local church in Thessalonica. That it, our love for one another would abound, would grow, ever increasingly so. Friends, would you join with me in praying for that, even right now, as we transition to talk a little bit about some goals for this upcoming year. So let's pray. Father, I do pray the same prayer that Paul has prayed in 1 Thessalonians, that the love of this church, that the love of Grace Bible Church would increase and would abound all the more. Lord, you sought fit to answer Paul's prayer, and we pray that you would see fit to answer ours. We ask it in the name of Jesus, and all of God's people said, Amen. So, don't leave. Stay in your seats because I have about five minutes and here's what we're going to do. I intentionally cut my sermon in half. Yes, that was half of a sermon. I know it felt like a full one. I'm sorry. That's what I do. Um, 
But here's what I'd like to do in the remaining minutes we have. I want to share with you some things that have been on my heart for quite some time now, at least a year, if not more. Uh, I've called them pastoral goals for 2016. You can call it whatever you want, but I want this to be a conversation between me and you about what I would really like and what I hope and pray you would really like to see happen in this church both in this current year and in the years to come. So I've got about seven things, and we'll, we'll move quickly. Number one, uh, you want to take a guess at the fir- what the first one is? Let's see it, Jason. Love, right? You could have guessed that, right? Love. So love individually. What I'd really love to do with this sermon series is to promote and encourage a renewed sense of love and connection within the church. So that means connecting with not just people that we're comfortable with, but people we're not comfortable with. People maybe that we don't know as well as some others. Challenge us to get outside of our friends and family bubble and to to love one another. So individually, that's what I hope happens. Uh, But not only that, corporately. What I'd like to do on a corporate level is to ask and create, you can call it a board, you can call it a team, but we need a a group of people who are gifted at practical love ministries. And what I mean is things like this. We need help, and I need help in this ministry with things like wedding showers, and baby showers, and flowers and meals after funerals or illnesses, calling, writing people. Hey, hey, so-and-so hasn't been here a few weeks. Let's write them a letter. Let's, let's send them a, a text message, right? Let's help those maybe who are going through difficulty. So if that's something that you feel like God has gifted you in that way, to connect with people uh, in, a, in a tangible sense, then come see me because that's what we're looking for. And then pastorally, uh, what I have for this year is, is a goal that, that I set for myself, which is within the year to uh, spend some time with each of you individually or as a family group unit. Maybe that's at your home. Maybe that's at the church. Maybe that's sitting beside you at a basketball game. Uh, maybe that's having dinner with you at the diner or Dairy Queen or whatever. Got that. Dairy Queen. Uh, Meeting, right, with, with everyone within the church, just to reconnect, just so I can better know how to pray for you. I don't know if you guys know this, but I pray for all of you every week, and uh, I would like to know how I can better do that. So love, right? Love is number one. What about number two? Fellowship, uh, related to love, of course. What I'd really like for us to do is to provide for us periodical fellowship opportunities, uh, periodical events for us just to rub shoulders and have conversations more than what we do on a typical Sunday morning. Similarly, if you like organizing and planning events, come see me because I can't do it on my own. So I would really like to form a small committee, team, whatever you want to call it, to help me plan periodically events so that we can enjoy fellowship with one another. But also, I'd like to encourage us, encourage all of us to think about the existing fellowship avenues that we have at the church. So we have an adult Sunday school class. It's sweet fellowship. We have men's Bible studies. We have women's Bible studies. We have 30 minutes set aside between Sunday school and church for you to come and have coffee and donuts and have a good conversation with one another. So fellowship is number two. Number three, prayer. Prayer. And that just happens to correlate with the movie that we're showing in a few weeks. But this has been something that's on my heart and mind for, for several years now. And I'd like to encourage us to have a renewed interest and dependence upon prayer in our church. Essentially to create a culture 
of prayer. So here's a few different ideas that I have, and I, I certainly welcome your input. I would like for us to have some extended pastoral prayer times, directed prayer from the scriptures, as well as specific prayers from you or the community. Uh, number two, I'd love to encourage us to have uh, some corporate prayer times within the worship service. Uh, that means you get to pray, not me, right? And that's a good thing. Uh, and then third, or fourth, yeah, fourth, um, I'd like to create and have just a semi-regular time of corporate prayer. I don't know if that's uh, before church on Sunday morning. I don't know if that's periodically on a Sunday evenings. I don't know what that looks like. I welcome your input. But here's what I do know. Um, we need to pray. I know that. We need to pray together. And so we're going to work towards that goal. Number four, missions. Uh, I'm sure you've noticed uh, that our missions committee has been doing some new things. So just about every Sunday, we have a mission spotlight. Now, we didn't today. I stole it, so sorry. But uh, usually we have a mission spotlight, and we take uh, one missionary per month, and I think that's been great. And I want to send a, a shout-out to Tim and Rita Wilcox in particular, because they've done a whole lot of work making that just as good uh, as it has been. So we're going to continue to do that. We're going to continue to offer um, Threads of Hope, which is a real vital ministry of clothing, of clothing to uh, our community and surrounding communities. We as a mission committee, by the way, we have uh, four couples on our missions committee and three of them are new. So there's turnover and there's new blood in the missions committee and it's good. It's a good thing. Uh, so we're going to continue our evaluation of our current missionaries and we've been thinking about a few things. What we'd like to do is come up with a plan uh, of helping us as a church be engaged in both local mission and forward mission. And let's just say in a span of three years, giving us as a church uh, numerous opportunities to do local mission work, whether it's pregnancy crisis, salt and light, or just things that uh, we can do within our community, um, giving us opportunities to serve together in this community. But secondly, create opportunities for foreign mission trips. So what that means is that I want to go overseas with you, right? I want to take you overseas with me to do foreign mission work, okay? So that's what we're going to work towards doing. Number five, youth ministry. I'm going to touch really briefly on this. Uh, We are going to continue our search for uh, a paid youth pastor, both part-time and even consider uh, the possibility of full-time youth ministry. As elders and deacons, we're talking about all these possibilities, but where we are now is this. Uh, Bud and Abby Petrie have agreed to do our high school youth group, so I'm very excited about that. I think they will do great. Uh, They have... um, well, I don't want to share all their ideas, but basically it's, it's, it's kind of a, a pop culture uh, model where they take uh, various media of the day and help kids think Christianly about those issues. I see Bud sitting right there, so if you have questions, you can go talk to him. But they've agreed to do that. Details forthcoming, uh, but I think that's going to be great. And here's where that leaves us. We would really like to have a junior high youth group as well. So, so, if the Lord is speaking to you right now, in this moment, and he's saying to you, I'm supposed to lead junior high. Then you come see me, okay? Because we need, we need a junior high ministry as well. Uh, number six, adult Sunday school education. Uh, here pretty soon in the next few months, uh, you will be getting a, an anonymous survey with a whole variety of questions related to not only the adult Sunday school class, but just Christian education in general. So I'm talking about men's Bible studies, women bi- women's Bible studies. I just kind of want to get a feel for where we are as a church about our needs and our desires when it comes to, to learning more about the scriptures and applying it in our life. Finally, number seven, 
considering some constitutional changes. Uh, we've been talking as elders and as deacons, and those conversations are ongoing. But we, uh, I think, need to consider uh, adding some doctrinal statements to our Constitution, adding specific statements on the church's view on marriage, sexuality, and sexual behavior. Why would we do that? Uh, three reasons. Number one, to provide legal protection against anti-discrimination lawsuits. I think that's something that would be wise for us to do. Uh, number two, simply to provide biblical clarity on these issues. It's a good thing for us to be reminded what the scripture says about these matters. And number three, to guide me and to, to guide our church on decisions as it relates to weddings, as it relates to uh, uh, pastoral counseling, just to have some guidelines scripturally to help guide my pastoral counseling ministry would be really helpful. So, I promised you five minutes. I think I took six. These are the six or seven things that have been on my mind. We're going to be working towards them, but I want this to be a dialogue. So please, if you have thoughts, if you have questions, if you have ideas, Please come see me, talk to the elders, talk to the deacons, and hopefully, by God's grace, we will pursue these with all of our hearts and be the the church that uh, God wants us to be. So let's pray again, and then we're going to go eat. Father, thank you for the meal that we're about to have, whether at home or here at church. We thank you for the hands that have provided it. We pray, Lord, that you would be the one guiding and directing our church, how we need your guidance, and we want to do what is right and well-pleasing in your eyes. So give us help and grace. Father, bless the meal that we're about to partake. May it strengthen our bodies for the day, that we may serve Christ well. In his name we ask it, and God's people said, amen. Thanks for coming. See you next week.